Hi everyone, welcome to If I Go Missing. I'm your host, Megan. Hi, I'm Lynn. Each week, we will bring you a new missing person story. Some have resolutions and some don't, but everyone still deserves to have their story told. This is the story of Kristen Smart, a beautiful, vibrant, and smart young woman who has been missing for longer than she was alive. Kristen was only 19 years old when she went missing, and she's now been missing for 23 years. This is her story. In 1996, Kristen Smart was a freshman at California Polytechnic State University in California at the time she went missing. On the eve of Memorial Day weekend in 1996, Kristen Smart set out with friends for a night of fun, later hanging out at an off-campus party until the early hours of the morning of the next day. Before leaving that night, she told her roommate as she was getting ready at the foot of her bed that she would be in town all weekend. After riding around with some friends looking for a party, the group finally finds one. But when they get there, Kristen is ready to go, but her friends aren't. Unable to convince her friends to go with her into the house party, Kristen decides to go it alone. Very bad idea. Always a bad idea. Always. Most of the general public thinks Kristen had went to this big fraternity party, but really it was just a birthday party of somebody she really didn't even know. It was thrown together at the last minute, and she kind of happened upon the party, and nobody there really even knew her. Oh, not good. Poor thing. So the total people at this party was like 20, which is definitely different than everything people originally thought. Like they, like I said, they thought she was at this big frat party. Yeah. That's what the story circulating was. Mm-hmm. An ID Channel show actually caught up with a guy named Trevor who was at the party that night. And Trevor said, Kristen seems super intoxicated, yet he hadn't seen her drink anything. Mm. Trevor also goes on to say that he believes someone slipped Kristen something that night. During this time at Cal Poly, rape assaults were happening, so... Date rape drugs were a thing, but they weren't really enough of a thing that people knew about it like they do now. Early in the morning hours, Kristen is found lying face down on the grass and not really even able to stand up on her own. Good Lord. And this is somebody who wasn't really even seen drinking. Yeah. Mm. This guy that was at the party, his name's Tim. He was an older senior at the time. He finds her and helps her stand up and tries to get her to the dorms when another freshman girl from the party comes up and offers to help. So the three start making their way to the dorms. Another guy from the party named Paul Flores walks up and joins the group. The four don't stay together long as Tim's a senior and lives in off-campus housing. And the other three live in the dorms. Kristen, Cheryl, and Paul continue walking at a slower pace than normal after they split up with Tim because of Kristen's condition. The three part ways when Cheryl goes to go to her dorm because it's in a different direction than Kristen's. But before she leaves, she says Paul asks her for a kiss and she says no. He then goes on to ask her for a hug, which she also says no. It was after this exchange that Cheryl just gets very creeped out and tries to get back home as fast as she can. But she also leaves Kristen in his Exactly what I was thinking. I probably would have just been like, no, I'm going to walk her back to her dorm. Thank you for your service. Exactly. She should have stayed with Kristen. Kristen was not in a condition for whatever reason to take care of herself. I also see her going, I'm getting the heck out of this situation. Yeah, I mean, hearing this story through all these second party news channels and everything, you don't really know what was going on. And Uh it's easy to say one thing and think, you know, in this situation, I would do another. Yeah. But honestly, can see both sides like we just talked about. 
Yeah, there's there's two sides to every story in the world. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I can see her not thinking about, oh my God, I need to stay here and watch out for mm-hmm. this girl. And, you know, just feel yeah. like, I need to get the heck out of Dodge. I don't know. I can I can definitely see I, yeah, I can def- running for your life or whatever. Yeah, I can see it being more of an instinctual thing and later on, be, yeah. you know, realizing yeah. and feeling, oh God, what have I done? Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite certain she feels horrible about something that she could have never. It's just a thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When Cheryl leaves Kristen and Paul, they're at the intersection of Perimeter Road and Grand Avenue. And Cheryl sees the two walking down Perimeter Road towards Kristen Dorm at Muir Hall. And it was around 2 a.m., May 25th, 1996. At the end of the long weekend, Crystal, who was Kristen's roommate, returns and notices that Kristen's belongings are in the exact same spot where she was using them to get ready to go out the same time Crystal was leaving for her weekend away. Hmm, yeah. When no one in the dorm can remember even seeing Kristen all weekend, Crystal called campus police. Campus police didn't begin fully investigating her disappearance until Tuesday when classes resumed. Okay. According to authorities, I have read in several places that for some reason campus police just thought, oh, it's normal for a girl to just up and disappear during the weekend. Or I've also heard situations where she was believed by the campus police to just be, like, off on a camping trip. Why would they believe that? Do they know her personally? What would possess you to just believe somebody, I whatever? don't know. Even, even if that's it, you go trying to find her. It doesn't matter where you find her. You Four find missing, you go find her. Exactly. You don't wait, what, three more days or whatever? According to a search warrant affidavit, fellow student Paul Flores was the last person to see Smart when he walked her home as far as her dorm before she continued back to her place alone. So, who is Paul Flores? Good question. Paul is a freshman at Cal Poly just like Kristen, but whereas Kristen is excelling in her studies, Paul is barely making it. Those who know him say he seems to have a problem with drinking, and not only that, when he does drink, he gets very obnoxious. No, that's nice. That's nice. When asked about Paul's behavior at the party that night, Trevor, who's already told what he observed about Kristen at the party, not really drinking much, but seeming super drunk, said that he remembers Paul just being like a fly on the wall that night. Okay. He does mention that Paul tried to make advances on another girl at the party that night until her boyfriend put an end to it. Trevor then adds that at one point, a heavily intoxicated Kristen pulled him aside for a chat about a guy she liked at the party. And he noticed that Paul was lurking around the area where they were talking. But he didn't think much of it at the time. Then, Paul just so happens to show up as Tim and Cheryl were trying to get Kristen back to her room. He just happens to show up in a lot of places. Yeah, a little stalky sounding. Just a little. I don't think it was maybe his original intention. I think when she came there and he saw mm-hmm. she was alone, exactly, it became his intention. Right. But right. I don't think he started out his night with that intention. It comes over as easy prey. Kristen was only about 40 yards from the door to her dorm building when she disappeared over 23 years ago. Originally, she wasn't declared missing for three days and her case wasn't turned over to the local police office for a month. Purpose. Campus police were not taking it seriously for some reason, and it took three weeks after she vanished for the police to question Paul Flores, the last person she was known to be with. By the time police even began to try and investigate and take Paul in for questioning, they actually have witnesses placing him at his dorm around 3 a.m. Let's backtrack, though. 
Mm-hmm. Kristen was last seen around 2 a.m. Exactly. We have witnesses placing Paul in his own dorm at 3 a.m. But do an you want to know? Later. But do you want to know what he was doing an hour later? I think so. Taking a shower. Oh. Hmm. Because, you know, when I come in from a party, if I've been drinking and I'm a little buzzed, the first thing I want to do is take a nice, refreshing shower. Yeah. Um, Who takes a shower at 3 a.m.? I mean, well, I'll go right back to it. If I have gotten muddy, if I've gotten dirty, if I've bloody. gotten bloody. Yeah, That's I don't know. That's the only reason I can think to take a shower at 3 a.m. after a party. Not have that at you're just going to be tired and want to sleep, yeah. whether you've been drinking or not. Yeah, at 3 a.m. But anyways, Paul is taking a shower. Okay. Also, when questioning Paul, detectives noticed he was sporting a black eye. Uh-huh. When he was asked about the black guy, he told campus police he got hurt in a pickup basketball game. Police then began to try and validate his story while investigating. One of his friends who was at the game said that he already had the bruise when he showed up to play. Okay. As if this wasn't suspicious enough, Flores later admitted that was a lie that he told authorities and he got the bruise fixing his truck before ending the interview. The truck punched him? I guess whatever mechanical tool he was using maybe it slipped i don't know and not only that i mean i've seen a lot of men work on trucks cars and it can happen you know how rare that would be i don't know i mean i am that person that has been laying on the ground like texting and has dropped her phone on her eye and gotten a black eye so (laughs) yeah okay and you know it's a true story because you saw it yeah but yeah i don't know it, all, it brings me back to the I Love Lucy episode. Nobody really believes the true story of a black guy, and nobody believes this it either. True. Yeah, they shouldn't have. So we now have three different stories, two of which came from Flores himself, and one coming from his friend about this black guy. Mm-hmm. And one of them completely yeah, taking every shred of validity out of one of his stories. One of the stories just sounds like something he came up with on the fly. Which is probably what it was. So, what is going on? He did not give this black eye in such an innocent way. Yeah, I don't think so either. Paul, with his changing black eye story, seems like he might just crack under pressure. But then he suddenly begins to realize how little investigators actually know about the case and what really happened that night. This newfound knowledge pushes him to make a brazen move. During interrogation, he actually looks at investigators and says, well, if you know so much, where's the body? Yeah, you just told me you did it. But you have no freaking proof. You just told me that you killed this young girl, and now you're challenging them to find her. Exactly. You're basically telling me, I did it, and you can't catch me. Mm. And there's nothing you can do to stop me. There's nothing you can do to hold me because you have no proof. How much more sickening can you get? I don't know. It's after this that he stops talking to police, stops taking part in the interview processes, and lawyers up. I bet he does. Cal Poly police realize they need some more help with this case, and investigators from the sheriff's office are brought in to search Paul's dorm room with four cadaver dogs. Paul's. How long has this been? Exactly. He could have gotten rid of any bloodstained clothes, anything. He could have even bought a freaking new mattress by now. But, yeah, let's go, sir. All four dogs are said to have sniffed their way into only Paul's room. Okay. I'm assuming, based on this statement, they were kind of open to the hallway that his dorm was on, or that his room was on, Mm -hmm. and kind of let loose, kind of like, let's see where they go. And all four dogs zeroed in on his room. 
Inside, yeah. the dog's keyed in on Flores' mattress, too, according to police. But he's never been charged with anything, and in 1996, a grand jury did not indict him. He has remained mum about the case, invoking his Fifth Amendment right to remain silent when he was disposed in 2005 on a wrongful death civil suit brought against him by Smart's parents. But here's the kicker. His case got dropped down to only a misdemeanor because, and only because, his attorney says, drop the charges against my client to a misdemeanor and I'll tell you where Kristen's body is. How does he know? I guess his client Did knows. his client tell him or... The yeah. deal was they basically wanted barely a slap on the wrist and Paul would plead guilty to involuntary manslaughter, reveal what happened that night, and lead police to Kristen's body in exchange for just six years behind bars. God. So here's what her parents were facing. Do we find out where our child is? Do we find out the truth of what happened to her that night? Do we find her body and finally put it to rest and put Jeez. her to peace? Or... Do we burn the stew out of him and fight? Do we fight for justice or bring her home and lay her to rest? Dear Lord. Uh, I don't know what I'd do as a parent. I don't want to be able to bring her home, bring her to rest. That's exactly where my mind goes. Kristen's parents were in the middle of negotiations with Paul's lawyer when the sheriff at the time makes a public statement saying, short of Paul Flores telling us what happened that night, this case will not be solved. Paul wasn't a rocket scientist, but he wasn't dumb either. The plea deal was taken off the table immediately. That sheriff completely ruined any chance we had of solving this back in 2005. God. So a judge officially declares Kristen dead in 2002, six years after she goes missing. And in 2011, Ian Parkinson became sheriff. His team made it their mission to comb through the case. Good. It is said that they sent DNA samples off the lab as DNA evidence testing had definitely improved since 1996. True. Over the course of the last 20 years, investigators have conducted multi-searches for remains or more clues about Kristen Smart's disappearance. In addition to that one search of Paul Flores' dorm room we mentioned earlier, in 2016, investigators would get what they called the most promising lead they've had in years. Over the course of about four days, a team sifted through about 20,000 cubic feet of dirt, the equivalent of about a dozen 26-foot-long moving trucks filled to capacity. At each of the three different locations on the hillside near the Cal Poly P, the landmark concrete letter that has overlooked the campus since 1919. Sheriff's officials did not say during the search whether they found anything of interest, but a lead indicated that Smart's remains could be on the hillside. An area searched by about 400 volunteers on foot over two days in June of 1996. In January of 2016, the Sheriff's Office requested special human remains detection dogs from the FBI headquarters in Virginia to search the hillside. The dogs, two Springer Spaniels and a German Shepherd mix, alerted investigators to several specific areas of interest. USA Today says that the 2016 excavation of the hill near the Cal Poly sign turned up nothing for Kristen's case. More recently, though, there has been some very interesting news regarding Kristen. In late January of 2020, her mother, Denise, said a retired FBI agent told her, be ready, this is going to be something you don't expect, and advised her to secure a family spokesperson and consider getting out of town for a while. However, federal agents told the San Francisco Chronicle they didn't tell Smart's family that a break in the case would soon be announced. 
Then when questioned, the FBI wouldn't comment on whether an announcement is actually pending. And the county sheriff's office declined to comment on the case because it's open and active. I always say if more info comes out, that I'll keep you guys updated. And this new news update is literally as recent as yesterday. I'm sitting here writing and recording this all on February 6th of 2020. This morning, I got a Google alert that there may have been a break in the case. Wonderful. I mean, I hope and pray there is something. And I hope he gets convicted. Well, according to the New York Times, yesterday's authorities investigating Ms. Smart's disappearance executed search warrants at four locations in California and Washington State and recovered some items of interest. Well... The discovery of just what these items are is still being kept tightly under wraps. For those who have been following her story from the beginning, or even recently just started following, this has definitely raised hopes that the case might finally be solved. These items are now being thoroughly analyzed to see how they fit in relation to Kristen Smart's case. On top of this amazing news, I want to leave this story on another positive note. Kristen's case has actually done a lot of good for the world and her legacy will live on through it regardless. Kristen's disappearance and the slow reaction by campus police resulted in the Kristen Smart Campus Security Act signed into law by then-Governor Pete Wilson on August 19, 1998. The law requires all public colleges and publicly funded educational institutions to have their security services make agreements with local police departments and report cases involving violence against students, including missing students. Had this been a thing when Kristen went missing, it could have very well have been a game changer. I'm thankful that the Smart family took such an emotional and heart-wrenching situation and made it into a law that will continue to help college students. I agree, because that was so mishandled. It definitely was. I just can't imagine not knowing where my child is for the rest of my life. Yeah. I, I, that's horrible. I, I can't, I just, I can't even wrap my head around that. Nobody deserves that. No family deserves that. Mm-mm. You don't have a right to take that from a family, to take their member from them and just leave them hanging. Yeah, oh. I mean, not only do you take their family member, take their loved one. Yes. But now you don't even... Let them have her remains. Exactly. I really hope this new stuff will turn up some evidence. Oh, I pray it does. But the thing is, they I was reading that they aren't going to, quote, they're going to be they're gonna have to be very careful when they arrest. Yes. Because if you arrest somebody, you have 48 hours to prove reason to hold them. Yeah. Or to prove a valid case against them. Yeah. So... If and when the time comes that he gets arrested, and I hope it does, they're gonna yeah. they're gonna have a really really good case. I hope so. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of If I Go Missing. If you have any case suggestions, you can email me at the Megan Noel. That's the M E G A N N O E L at gmail.com. You can also find me on Instagram at the Megan Noel or the podcast Instagram at Megan Noel Podcast. You can also go to Facebook and find the page for Megan Noel Podcast and all the discussion groups for the various podcasts that we host. This episode was compiled by me, hosted by me, and co-hosted by Linda Anderson. Thank you so much for listening and we can't wait to see you again next week.